it's Jurgen Wolf here with Creativity Rocket number two. And as usual, I'm aided and abetted by my faithful manservant, Arthur. Greetings. Our special guest this time is Matthew Friday, who is a teacher and a storyteller. And we'll be chatting about the power of stories and what makes a good story. Uh, because frankly, Matthew talks to kids. And if you can hold an audience of kids, you can pretty much hold any audience. Uh, Arthur, were there any stories that were particularly important or influential uh, to you when you were growing up? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Hmm, that's a bit bit grim, isn't it? It prepared me for my current employer. But but I'm your current... Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, in addition to my interview with Matthew Friday, I'll be doing a 60-second book review of another one of my favorite creativity-themed books and giving you a tip for how to deal with procrastination. Arthur, what do you procrastinate about? Going to the movies. Oh, you, yeah, I, I do the same. You tend to go to a movie, and then uh, by the time you get around to it, it's gone, right? Do you know where the gun with the wind is still playing? Hmm, I don't think so. I think you missed that one. Yeah. Hmm. All right, let's get on to our interview. My guest today, is, as I said, is Matthew Friday, a storyteller. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Matthew is that a lot of us, and the people I've interviewed here on the podcast and myself as well, uh, write stories once removed, that is, via the format of scripts or novels or short stories or whatever. But what Matthew does is the most traditional form of storytelling, sort of the most elemental, basic, face-to-face -face kind of storytelling. So I wanted to chat about that. And first of all, Matthew, maybe just start by giving us a bit of background. How sure. did you get into this, and what is your type of storytelling? How would you characterize it? Uh, well, a couple of years ago, I, um, I've been a writer for a long time, but for adults. I've never really uh, written for children. And then a couple of years ago, I did my uh, teacher training qualification, uh, working um, with sort of four to eight-year-olds. And I kind of was looking for a way how I could bring the, the writing that I, I still wanted to do together with the teaching. I found this passion for education and teaching. Um, and at the very beginning of the training, um, I on my first placement, in quite a sort of tough school uh, in South London, I started reading books in a kind of interactive fashion. I sort of would read the picture books to six-year-olds and then stop and ask questions and get them to extend the story. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting. You, you don't have to just sort of follow exactly the book. And that got me thinking about whether, I, whether you could just tell a story in a traditional form. I'd always, I always knew that there was oral storytelling, but never felt that was something I wanted to do. I, I, I wasn't confident. It wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. I was quite intimidated by the idea of telling a story from memory. I'm, um, I'm a, an auditory dyslexic. I have problems remembering language when spoken, so I, I thought that was be a particular problem for me. Um, at the same time, I was investigating on my course the idea of narrative psychology, which is a, a model of psychology that says that all human beings are hardwired to understand the world through the point of view of narrative, beginning, middle, and end. And this begins before birth. Yeah, babies develop a sense of expectation. They, they are hungry. They cry for milk. They're given milk. It's kind of a beginning, middle, end. And this develops into, in some sort of magical way, a toddler's innate love of stories and the repetition of stories. Because something I was finding, which I mean everyone that, that works with children finds, is they just sort of innately love stories. And that if you are telling stories to children, really any kind of story, there's a sort of a magical bond, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I want to explore that. I then uh, left it for a couple of months, uh, still didn't quite know how I was going to connect myself as a writer with myself, this new self as a teacher. 
And I went to the British Library and also the Hornby Museum, which is a great little museum in South London, and they had some professional storytellers there. And it was the first time I saw professional storytellers working with very young children. And I could see they were using tricks of teaching, things that I was beginning to learn. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I could do the reverse. So I'm learning teaching. I wonder if I could use a few tricks of storytelling. So I wrote down the stories that I heard. They were traditional African stories. And I went back into my, this was my second class, still six and seven-year-olds. And I decided I would tell the story just from memory. I memorized it. I rehearsed it. I memorized it. I told the story. And straight away, the children were captivated. Mm. Uh, almost more captivated by the fact there wasn't a text between us. I mean, traditional storytellers will say that it's really good to put the text down and just have the immediacy between you, the teller, and the children. I don't consider myself a traditional storyteller in that, you know, I think literature and books are incredibly important. I think it's all very important. Having said that, there was some sort of magic. And I suddenly thought, well, that's amazing, because the kids are just completely absorbed. And then as soon as I finished the story, they were saying things like, I can't believe you were telling the story. You, you told a story. And I was like, I, I can't believe I did it either. <laughs> and I got a real buzz off it. And I was like, I wonder if this is it. And at the same time, developing my kind of investigation into how narrative psychology can be used in education. And I found a whole school of education. Very, very, well, really much better known in America than it is anywhere in Europe, especially here, which is that teaching is storytelling and vice versa. And it's not really a particular sort of, it's nothing particularly original, but it's a revelation to me, which is that the earliest form of teaching was storytelling. It was the elders around campfires detailing how the world works to the young people of the community way before written literacy, way before even sort of mass civilization. Uh, again, this isn't anything new to people that know about these things, but to me it was, it was the connection. I suddenly thought, wow. And then I tracked that back up and read actually many American theorists who are working in American schools and, and saying, you can use storytelling to teach. You can use storytelling to teach, obviously in literacy, but you can use the story of scientists. You can use the story of a mountain. Because we are all hardwired along narrative lines, you can teach anything through a beginning, middle, and end. You can use characters in math. You, and I, it was just the whole world opened up to me, and I was thinking, "This is amazing. This is like." And then it became my vision for education, which is storytelling in education. Um, and it, it just it brought everything together for me. Um, so I then, uh, that's actually the biggest development, though. Having said all of that, was uh, a few children in the class. I saw they had they brought in these diaries, and they were writing stories themselves. And I, I said, "Would you want to tell the story and do it the way I do it?" And they went, okay. And they started becoming storytellers. And I felt that, for me, is the most important thing. And that's what I do a lot, is I empower the children to become storytellers. At the same time, I have experimented a lot with making it interactive. So um, I'm not particularly too bothered about me as a performance. I, I'm not an actor. I'm not a performer. I don't enjoy that kind of exposure. So what I, uh, the way I got around that very early on was in telling the story, I got the children up as actors, acting out the story as I told it, repeating the dialogue as I said it. Uh, and, then and it becomes a little bit like a theatre show, but still with me as an oral storyteller. And that was the thing the children love, the absolutely love the most, is that kind of direct involvement. So the story becomes something, it becomes more alive, because we're all in the story together. Right. And then the children now in my class, uh, again, it's still six and seven-year-olds, um, they they write their own stories, they pick their own actors, we use musical instruments, uh, and, and it just, 
it's come alive in a way that two years ago I would never believed I would be able to do. I just didn't. I wouldn't have thought that it would be the way it is. And now, it's become a regular part of my life and my job and everything. Well, that's very interesting, and and it's obviously awoke a sort of passion in you to to, I guess, make this your story now. I think so. Absolutely. I think it's like I say. It's it's something that was in me that wanted to connect up these two sides. And it and it works. And then there's a third element, you know, the, the sort of the, the thing is greater than the parts. It just has taken over me. And now I, I mean, I read all kinds of stories, folk tales from all around the world, and um, I do everything I can to get them into to teaching. I do everything I can to sort of mould lessons around narrative structure because I just see time and time again how children respond much more to anything with a story. And what's always of taking me by surprise, I'm always surprised by it, is how much the children respond to me as a storyteller more, actually sometimes more than a teacher, because they're very familiar with teachers and that kind of setup. But the children come up to me and say, oh, do you remember that story you told? Uh, and often I don't, because it was ages ago. Oh, do you remember I was a hare in your story? Do you remember this? Do you remember that? And they remember these, these stories much more than they remember the lessons. And, I, and I, it just can, it reminds me again and again that storytelling, because it's an emotional experience and often lessons in state education are not emotional experiences they're about transmitting knowledge and the children have to be assessed and it's quite dry that they the children hook onto the stories and that's part of the magic of childhood which again is no surprise people know this but it's it's kind of making it work in education and now i have sort of ambitions to really expand this and and to help my colleagues tell stories and become storytellers and maybe one day to run a school where the whole curriculum is from a storytelling point of view which is possible. You, uh, I know other schools that have where the head teachers have particular passions for certain ways, and they, you can run a school from a particular point of view, but model it on the narrative psychology model right. very openly. So uh, big ambitions, but that's what I love about it. Great, yeah. Well, you mentioned you'd also written for adults, and I'm just wondering, do you think that the elements that make a story compelling to kids are any different from the ones that uh, make it work for an adult, or what do you find are the, the commonalities there? Um, the, what children love, uh, very young children like repetition. Um, the, sort of three and four year olds would love the repetition of a line of dialogue that they can say. Uh, as they get a little older, the, the things that, the, the repetition that they enjoy can become more sophisticated. They, they enjoy the repetition of a scenario rather than, say, a simple piece of dialogue. Uh, and I think some of the best stories for children are those which have repeating incidents that build to a, an expectation. And in that sense, it's not a lot different from from writing with adults in that the structure is very similar. Um, I, I would say that the sophistication will be will be different. Of course, you, as the children get older, you can embellish more, uh, and there's certain sort of emotional subjects, certain tones that are appropriate at certain ages and not. Um, I would say the elements of a story that adult and child, adults and children like. I mean, children love humour. They love they they love perhaps more silliness than than uh, than adults might. Um, they they often like sort of physical action, not not expressed necessarily through fighting, but but they they are quite drawn to that. Um, they're not so keen on lengthy description. Uh, they like the sort of the plot and the humour and the and the activities of the story. Um, what I, I'm often surprised is how much adults enjoy the story that I think are just for children. So whereas uh, you couldn't perhaps give an adult story to a child, you can always give all the children, all the stories I tell to children. Every adult I've told, 
they they enjoy the stories as well. <laughs> right. So it, it sort of works up easier than it works down, if you know what I mean. Does yeah, that make sense? Yes, it does. And, and I think, uh, just going back to your point about repetition, when we think about the, an adult context, uh, there are certain authors who, who basically keep writing the same book over and over yeah. again, and they have a huge yeah. following because people find there's a comfort level. Or, or even on television, uh, we've just finished another series of The X Factor here, and one of the stories, patterns that keeps coming up is, you know, some person from a, a tragic circumstance yeah. of one kind or another, grandmothers just died or they're very poor or whatever, and they hope to make their dreams come true winning this song contest, and it's, it's a very similar story pattern. Cinderella story, I suppose. I suppose under, yeah. under every adult story, very actually not, not particularly deeply under every adult story, it's quite a simplistic... Uh, almost fairy tale plot, but also universal theme story, and there are only so many plots in the world anyway, and they're really not that deep. Right. And I think adults are just big children, and they do like the same stories. They just perhaps as adults convince themselves that they're not. Oh, that that story isn't isn't a sort of a fairy story underneath. And you think, yeah, X Factor's mostly mostly playing on those rank to riches stories. Yeah. And then even in sort of if I think of sort of genre script writing, it, it, think of a crime series. It is repeating the same um, pro storytelling process over and over again. And as an audience, they, you enjoy that. You go to that because you enjoy that repeated type of story. And this, you know, especially if you're a crime reader or I don't know a romance reader, you're looking for certain things to be fulfilled and then certain other things to be different. So I think repetition just becomes more sophisticated the more older you get. But Scratch away at the service and isn't that sophisticated at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the challenges for authors of all kinds, and, I, and even more so perhaps storytellers, is capturing people's attention at the start of the story. Yeah. I, with, with young kids, I know that their attention's all over the place. How do you, what's the secret of that? Uh, two things. I, I think, firstly, I'm quite fortunate in that um, I, the children sort of tend to pay attention. I, I'm quite lucky in that I don't have to struggle for that. Uh, I, I would wait. I would use teaching tricks. I would wait till they're quiet and I would compliment the children that are sitting nicely and looking like they're ready. And and by doing sort of a positive behaviour management very quickly, the entire audience are making themselves ready. Um, I, I suppose I have a reputation in my, in my school and in the local library for storytelling, so the children are kind of want to hear the stories. Having said that, uh, I also use a musical instrument called a zinger, um, because I know that sort of traditional storytelling, there is a sort of a phrase to begin and end, um, but that's, uh, that's too self-consciously about a performance, and I say I'm, I'm, rather, I'm a bit too shy for that. So I have this, I inherited this instrument, which is a bit like a, I don't know, it's, it's a sort of a box with metal strings, and uh, I was given it by my music teacher. So I just say every story begins with a zing, and, the, and I, I always get the children to do the musical instruments, and they just, they play this instrument three times, and it, it sort of zings up and up or down all the notes, and it just begins the story, and children know that's how the story begins. It's not really a big deal, and it ends on that as well, but it's just, like you say, it's just something just to kind of, cue in the very last people to, to pay attention. Oh, right, the zing, we begin. So it's sort of a sonic version of the phrase, once upon a time. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'd say many storytellers have that have a, have a sort of oral phrase about opening the box or closing the box or here is my story, now pass it on. And I just, I begin in with the zing, really, because I, I think also I'm always trying to think to myself, I find it quite hard to listen to stories because of my dyslexia and because I just lose concentration really easily. So I, I, I try not to do, which is in, <laughs> sounds almost ironic, really, or, or silly, I try not to do too much talking. 
<laughs> which probably sounds unbelievable given I'm, I'm talking quite a lot now, but in storytelling. So I try and think of other ways. So I have lots of musical instruments. I have lots of props. I get the kids to do the physical acting so that the audience have choices because children, you know, they don't all listen in the same way. Some are better at taking information in visually, some by hearing, some by doing. So if I have a number of different ways of presenting the story at the same time, most people in the room will find something to draw their attention and be into the story. If I just sat there and told it, those children like me who lose concentration easy will be looking around the room after five minutes, you know, not meaning to be distracted, but they just can't help themselves. And I, I understand that. Whereas a little instrument, just, oh, okay, there's a noise, or, oh, there's a chance I might be an actor and put that hat on, that's great, I'm excited, I'm involved. So there's, there's, I try and think of different ways to sort of captivate the children. Yeah, and I would say that in text, again, because a lot of the listeners are, are writers, um, the equivalent of that might be writing to the different senses, so that you've got mm. uh, individual people who tend to predominate, but they have something to work with to create an image, but also the auditory people, you supply some clues about what the sound is in the scene that's going on and so on. Yes, to help that imagination in the picture in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the biggest challenges is also what, what sometimes in script writing is called the second act swamped, uh, yeah. the middle of the story where people often do bog down and people's the listeners' attention starts to wander a bit. Uh, any tricks or tips for how to keep their attention during that phase of the story? Um, I would say I, I'm aware of this almost without consciously thinking about it because I'm very selective in the stories that that I tell. Um, as I say, I read a, a huge number of folk tales and, and myths and fairy tales, and I know straight away if one's going to work. And it, it is that middle bit, and the middle bit, it, it, it links quite heavily to do with structure. I suppose I, I take quite a structural approach to writing anyway, and I remember stories by the events that happen. And then, So I, what I, I, I tend to add lib, uh, make up on the spot the dialogue, the description, the embellishment. And what I remember is the structure, the structural bones of the story. So I look for stories that are quite heavily structured, where there is um, maybe a, a sense that there's always a journey, um, but maybe also elements of repetition that I can remember. And those repetition elements are most present in the second act. So uh, a lot of stories, the, the characters, they, they need something, they want something, they're going to achieve something first act. Second act, they go on a journey to do that. Very, this is very familiar structural stuff. I mean, this is that sort of Joseph Campbell hero's journey, three-act structure stuff. But it applies to oral stories as well because they're the most ancient stories already going. Anyway, so then the repeated structure in the second act tends to be the, the hero, which could be a sort of positive hero or an anti-hero or a trickster. Tricksters are very common in oral stories. And it's them maybe meeting a series of characters and it's that kind of uh, repeating of scenarios uh, which keeps the second act alive. And often it's the middle bit of the story that the children enjoy the most, because that's where there's most acting be, to be done. That's where I need my other characters, so I need my other actors, so the children are more involved. Um, and that's where the expectation builds, because if I think of the story of Half a Chicken, which is the story of how um, it explains why weather vanes used to be cockerels. And how on earth did someone decide once that a weather vane would be shaped like a cockerel? It's a story of a chicken that was born as literally half a chicken and decides to go see the King of England because very unhappy, wants compensation, wants to have some support from the king because how can you live as half a chicken? So the second act is 
half a chicken meeting a series of characters, quite abstract, meets a river, meets a fire, meets wind stuck in a tree. And because half a chicken's a bit of a selfish anti-hero character, half a chicken declines to help these three characters. So, uh, but so what happens is that, that repetition is the second act. Children enjoy that. But they also know that come the third act, there's going to be a consequence about half a chicken's selfish behavior. So they're looking forward to the third act because of what you've established, the pattern you established in the second act. So the stories I tell have that kind of pattern structure where I know that there's going to be plenty going on physically, but it creates an expectation for the third act. And where the stories I perhaps don't tell are those the, the very much sort of longer, more complicated stories, the stories perhaps where there are... Um, many larger incidents that happen over a series of years, and they're quite difficult to tell in a 10, 15-minute story structure. You know, there's kind of a more flowing structure to them, and that's harder to pin down, and I think I would lose children there. Yeah, that's sort of similar to what people say about the uh, demands of a one-act play or a short story of that unity of of time, keeping the time frame relatively Mm -hmm. short generally. And I think it's also interesting what you said about building, both going back to the first act of repeating and reminding people what they've already heard, what's already happened, but also building this sort of inevitable sense that there will be a consequence to what's happening right now. And again, I think all those are totally applicable to, to all kinds of storytelling. Exactly, yeah. As far as the conclusion of a story, what kind of endings do kids demand? Happy endings? Uh, do they expect them, or or what? What's uh, what's uh, what's your finding about that? Um, I think it's like kids and adults are the same. They think they want a happy ending. The truth is, they want the ending that's most right for that story. And I think of the stories I enjoy telling the most, the children most respond to. Uh, they're quite dark stories. I mean, half a chicken ends up stuck on a pole and becomes a weather vane. That's not a happy ending. <laughs> right. uh, and there are, and there are silly stories that are neither happy nor saddening. They're just that it's it's a it's the right payoff for what you've built up in the second act. The expectation is fulfilled, whether happily or not. Having said that, children, as I say, they they do. They do like a happy ending, but I don't see it's my job to give them the happy ending all the time. Because what they end up as adults then is, is thinking that all stories are happy ending stories. When in fact, I think the sort of the great works of literature, the great stories that they feel by their books, they just have an ending that is right for that story. It doesn't have to be. And often we think of happy endings as something a bit. I don't know. You watch something sort of happy, and you think, oh, that's. That doesn't feel right. It feels like it's just a happy ending for the sake of it. And I think children, without being able to express that, understand that themselves as well. Yeah, and I think we've we've suffered a little bit from the Disneyfication of yeah. stories because they, they took these wonderful, during the sort of heyday of Disney movies, they took these wonderful folk tales as starting points, sometimes very literally just uh, co-opted them totally, but then took out any of the darker, most of the darker mm. elements, and certainly made the endings unambiguously happy, which, which is uh, unfortunate because it's losing one whole important aspect of those stories. Yeah, and it loses some of the learning from them as well, and it loses the sort of social context, which is it's really interesting to have a story and discuss it in a kind of uh, educational context in class. And, and to look at where it's set and to kind of broaden the story out. And if it has a very kind of um, forced-upon ending, then 
then, uh, yeah, that can feel fake and it can detract from, like you say, from its sort of cultural depth. Having said that, um, you can change the story. So we do, we study Little Red Riding Hood in the context of literacy, but we, there's a Japanese version called The Panther, which is sort of, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a story about where instead of a wolf, there's a panther, and the panther comes to the Japanese equivalent of Little Red Riding Hood's house rather than she goes off uh, through the forest. Uh, and she's helped in a similar way by a kind of woodcutter stroke merchant, but it's also quite different. So sometimes it's, it's, it still has a, has a reasonably happy ending, yeah, though mother is eaten, but it has a happy ending. But it's, it's different enough to be um, intriguing to the children. And, and they often find that something that's similar but also quite different more interesting than just revisiting the same old story. So I try and look for, for alternative versions of existing fairy tales, which is much easier than it sounds, because if I think of a story like Nail Soup, which is a really, really... I mean, I, I thought it was a, a story common to Northern Europe, which is uh, about a starving man who tricks... Uh, a selfish person into feeding them by putting a nail in soup and convincing this person this will produce the best soup in the world. And it's a trick, because what he constantly does is ask for little extra ingredients just to kind of make the soup brilliant. Right. And in the end, he makes like a vegetable broth. <laughs> not, but I, I, I did some research, and of course, this story is 200 versions around the world, and because it, it's a very common archetypal folk story. Uh, the Pied Piper, there's about 50 versions as far, as, as far away as China. And that's really interesting to children as well. And that empowers them to do their own version. And when you get onto their own version, then you get interesting diversions. The Pied Piper is one of the most interesting stories of all, um, because I, I can't quite work out whether it has a happy ending or not. The Pied Piper takes all the kids into a mountain. Uh, I mean, they're dead, and they're in a kind of heaven. Uh, and it's a certain analogy for the fact that children died in the plague, but also the children and many adults take it as a literal story. The Pied Piper literally led them away. So it's a confusing story and a really dark one, but but very popular one. Yeah, and probably has something to do with, uh, with the ambivalence that parents sometimes feel about having had children. So Yeah, quite. Yeah. I mean, the psychological aspect of this is very interesting as well. In terms of life stories, there's, there's a mm -hmm. whole school of psychology that basically feels that we we uh, create a life script and that we can uh, become a prisoner to it if we don't become aware of it. Uh, that's a whole other topic, which I'd love to explore <laughs> yeah. another time. But this has been really fascinating. I really appreciate you giving us the time for this. Uh, I think lots of good stuff in there, both inherently interesting, but also interesting in terms of how it can apply to the other forms of storytelling, uh, you know, derived from the most, most elemental one, as we've been talking mm -hmm. about. So, thanks to Matthew Friday for sharing those tips and ideas about storytelling. Arthur, uh, you, I know you have some young grandnephews and nieces. What, what kind of stories do you tell them? Jack the Ripper is one of my favorites. It tends to make the more unruly children go quiet. I sense years of therapy in their future. Sometimes I read to them from Silence of the Lambs. Oh, definitely time to move on. Okay, this time my book review is for the book Creativity Now, written by... Oh, wait a minute, it's by me. What a coincidence. But it's good, what can I say? It would be remiss of you not to tell everyone. Exactly. So it has four sections. Now, the first is 25 ways to get into a creative state of mind. You can't actually order inspiration, but you can certainly create the conditions that make it a lot more likely it'll appear. 
So let me give you one, an example of one of these. One of my favorites is, is to become a street comber. That's like a beach comber. You know, somebody picks up shells on the beach. But in this case, it's collecting images on the street. This concept comes from a guy named Richard Stump. And his idea is that you take your camera with you everywhere and you snap anything unusual that catches your eye. It could be a, a sign, uh, you know, people doing something, whatever it would be that seems unusual or interesting to you. And then later, you use those shots to stimulate your thinking if you're creating a product or you're writing a story or whatever it might be. Now, I like that because it has two benefits. First, when you're looking for things to, to photograph, you are much more alert to your surroundings. And second, of course, when you're trying to come up with ideas, it's much easier to do so if you've got some kind of stimulus, something to start the flow of thinking. So that's section one. Now, section two is 25 ways to come up with new ideas. So it's brainstorming techniques beyond the usual. And one of these is to imagine someone else's solution to whatever your challenge is. So you imagine, for instance, how would Attila the Hun handle it? Uh, how would your grandma have handled it? Or how would a five-year-old child look at the problem? So it brings you lots of new perspectives. The third section is one that most creativity books don't deal with, and I thought it was really important to to have that in there, and it's about how to turn ideas into action, to actually act on your great ideas, because a lot of us have lots of ideas, and then we don't get around to doing anything with them, and often somebody else does, and then we think, I had that idea, and you wish you'd acted on it. So one of my favorites is prototyping. Uh, rather than trying to get the project right the first time out, come up with a prototype, a rough draft, a rough version, and test it on a few people, and then use their feedback to, to make it better. And the internet makes this a lot easier for many kinds of projects than it used to be. And the fourth and final section features 25 inspirational case studies of people and companies that have been really creative and successful. And one of my favorites is a woman named Jackie Lawson. She, she lives here in the UK, who created uh, some years ago an animated Christmas card for her friends. And she sent them out and didn't think anything much of it. Uh, but they passed it on to their friends, who passed it on to their friends. And pretty soon, all kinds of people were getting in touch with Jackie Lawson, saying, we want this card. Can we get the card, too? Or do you have more cards uh, that are animated in the same way? And they're beautiful cards. And she turned it into a business. And now she makes more than one and a half million pounds a year. That's about two and a quarter million dollars a year from people who subscribe to her site and get new cards as she creates them. That's almost as much money as you make. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the book Creativity Now, it's called. It's published by Prentice Hall Business, which is an imprint of Pearson. It's also full color, very pretty. And you can find it uh, here in the UK at WH Smith Travel Outlets or on Amazon, wherever you are, and at other online and offline retailers. Oh, and there's some cool bonuses on the website. The website is, is at my main website, which is... Uh, three W's, and then jurgenwolf.com, J-U-R-G-E-N-W-O-L-F-F.com. And you just click on the book cover there, the yellow cover, because it says Creativity Now, and you'll be whisked to a secret location where there are bonus videos and audios and lots of other good stuff. Our final segment today is a tip on overcoming procrastination. Arthur, would you procrastinate on anything else? Can I get back to you on that? Uh, an old joke. I'm an old man. Yes. Anyway, one of the most effective antidotes is what I call 
micro-chunking. And you take a task that you've been avoiding and you break it down into ridiculously small steps. You commit only to taking each tiny step at a time. So if after you've taken the first little step, you feel like going on to the next one right away, that's okay. But you don't have to. And knowing you don't have to makes it safe to get started. So let's look at an example. Now, one thing I procrastinated about is approaching some other podcasters and offering to do an interview with them about creativity. And obviously, that might help promote the book and this, this program as well. So the first micro step might be just to go onto the internet and find the addresses of, let's say, 10 or 15 podcasts that also deal with creativity in various forms and that might, might be interested in, in talking to me. The second micro chunk might be to choose three of those to approach, the ones that seem the most likely. The third micro chunk might be to write a quick draft of the message that I want to send them, probably by email. Although I could break that one down even further and just do one paragraph a day for however many days it takes, three or four days. Uh, so then the next micro chunk might be to rewrite the message to make sure it's good. And the last one would be to actually send that message to three podcasts. So each of these steps is small enough that it's not intimidating and it's not going to take much time. So it feels safe to, to get into it. And so if there's something you've been procrastinating about, give the micro-chunking method a try. And that just about brings us to the end of this edition of Creativity Rocket. You can subscribe at iTunes and you can also have a look at my daily writing blog, if you're interested in writing at all, at 3Ws and then timetowrite.blogs.com. Join us again next time, folks. Bye-bye for now. Farewell. Farewell.